welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, where you can hear classic recorded messages from Kimber Kaufman. Throughout these messages, Kimber faithfully follows the text to deliver God's message and to practically apply it to life. I found this verse this week. My heart is, all week long, I've rejoiced on this one verse. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. We trust you will enjoy listening to these classic recordings. And in just a moment, we will join our teacher with the message. We believe that some of our listeners may have additional recorded messages from Kimber at home. If you have a cassette and would consider sharing a recording with our audience, please contact us through our email at theexpositoryword at gmail.com. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the Word, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. Before we study God's Word today, let's just ask Him to help us now, okay? Our Father, save us from just externals. Save us from going through the motions. And may as we contemplate and meditate, and as Your Word of God is expounded, then would you help it to sink into our hearts and get a hold of this down deep? We often think of the work that we want you to do through us. We pray now you do a work in us as we study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People often say to me, uh, we're church shopping. That's what they say. I meet them. How are you? Good to see you. How'd you hear about our church? We're church shopping. That's what they tell me. And I know what you mean by that. It means a couple of things. One is, you've just moved to town and you're looking for a church. Another is, you're recently converted to Christ. You know you should be going to church, and so you start looking for a church. Another is, uh, you're, you're tired of your old church and you want to find some new freshness. I'm not sure what it could be, but the, 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 more than that, but it's at least those things I know for sure. But something that is a little bit perplexing to me is this. The questions that people ask me in regards to what they're looking for in a church. It always amazes me. For instance, they never seem to ask about theology, but there are lots of questions about programs. What program do you have? What can you do for me? Is normally what is said. And I think it's not that people are bad. I think there's a mindset in our country today that the church is there to, to, to serve me. Um, people ask me about issues rather than theology. For instance, people will say to me, where do you stand on politics? I don't know, do you want me to tell you how I voted? I'm not sure what they want exactly. They, they say, where do you stand on abortion? One, one big one I've gotten is they name a certain individual. Where do you stand on Bill Gothard? Where do you stand on such and such? And they, they, they ask questions like that. Who, so and so. I've never been asked ever, where do you stand on the person and work of Jesus Christ? But I've been asked about a lot of other people. It's common to hear people say, how's your youth program? Do you have a choir? What about this? What about that? And sometimes I will tell you, it sort of gets at me, and if you're here today and you ask me one of those questions, don't let this discourage you because you're not alone. Many people have asked. But I can often tell you that it sort of gets at me sometimes because I feel like I'm supposed to be a salesman. And I'm supposed to sell the College Park product and convince them that this church is for them. Now, in my heart, I really want them to think that. And I wish that truly there was things happening here and hope that it would cause people to really be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. But I can honestly say I have never had anyone ask me about what should be going on in a local assembly 
as the Apostle Paul lays it out here in Ephesians 4, 12 through 16. Nobody's ever asked me that. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now let's look and see what is supposed to happen in this church. Ephesians chapter 4, go back to verse 7. Look what he says. The scripture says, To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now we studied that a few weeks ago. And then we studied last week this very difficult section, verses 8 through 10, which talk about how God gave the Levites to Israel and he's given apostles and prophets and pastor teachers and evangelists to the church, to God's people, so they could be built up. But... It goes on, now go down to verse 11, and it says this, It was He, that is Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to get this, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind, and and caught up in the cunning craftiness of of false teachers. The good question to ask yourself is this. Biblically speaking now, what does this passage say? What is a pastor to do? He gave pastor teachers to the church. What is the pastor teacher to do? That's interesting to ask. You go to church, you better know. Hey, what's what's the blueprint? What's the cut down? What are we supposed to actually know about the church? Well, and we can say it like this. What is to be happening in the church? What is supposed to be going on? The first thing I want you to see is this. It says there in the text of verse 12 that these men were given to the church. If you look at verse 11 and use your mind and then look at verse 12, the men were given to the church, the pastor teachers were given to the church to prepare or slash you could say equip God's people. Now, that is a very interesting word because it's the word used to talk about the setting of a broken bone. It's the word used about mending a broken net. It's the word that is used to, it means to make perfect or to outfit or to equip. The the best illustration of what this word means is this. Imagine you were going to go camping in the Colorado mountains next week. And instead of coming here for this to be a church, you came here and this was a camping store. And I was just an absolute expert. I mean, I was like Mr. Mountain Man himself. And you came in and said, oh, do you have one of these? No, what are these for? Oh, do you have one of those? And I would sell you a lot of things if I was running a store. And those things were going to help you to be equipped so you could go out and handle things in the mountains. Now that's what this word means. The pastor has been given by Jesus Christ, by his grace, to the church, and along with the apostles and the prophets and the uh, evangelists. But he's been given to the church for the sake of equipping people so that they can do something. But first, before we even say what it is they're supposed to do, I want you to know a couple of things from the scriptures that is supposed to happen. This line could actually be coming both from the Word and from prayer. But if you will take, for instance, the pastoral epistles written to pastors, you will find that the Bible says, teach, 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 teach. The number one thing a pastor teacher is supposed to do is teach the Word of God clearly. Not vaguely, not sort of, not taking just a couple of minutes. It's to be primary in the life of the church, the teaching of the Word of God. It is to be something, in fact, the Apostle says to Timothy, you teach the word in season, out of season, reprove by the word of God, rebuke by the word of God, exhort by the word of God, encourage by the word of God. In other words, be using the scriptures continually to instruct people. It also teaches us very clearly that we're also supposed to be spending a great deal of time in prayer for those people that we are shepherds over. To give you an illustration, in Acts chapter 6, the church was growing and was getting so big. And the apostle said, look, we can't continue to do all of these more menial tasks. 
We've got to set aside ourselves to do two things. To teach the Word of God and to pray. So let's get some deacons. And the deacons are to do the service work so that the men that are teaching the church, the apostles, could spend that time teaching and praying to, for God's people. Now, I want you to know that this idea of the Word of God being taught to you and godly men who Christ has given to the church praying for you is extremely important in the Scriptures. It, it's, it's, it's tremendous key to your maturity. You, if you think, oh, I'm just making that up because that's my job and I want you to feel like I have an important job, it's more than that. You watch as we follow this text, you'll see exactly what it says. It goes on to say, also, I want you to know, that trials and suffering, which come from God's sovereign hand, also prepare you and equip you. In fact, if you would study James chapter 1 about trials, it says these trials have a work in your life to equip you or to prepare you or to perfect you. It also goes on to say in 1 Peter 5.10 that after you have suffered in the will of God for a while, you would be perfected or completed. One thing that American Christians do not understand is this. They want to go deep into the Christian life, and yet when trials come, they want to run. They want to go deep into the Christian life. Well, when sufferings come, they can't stand it. And they, we, we want ease. We want peace. We want, and somehow you've got the idea that if you really live a good Christian life, if you're really in the center of God's will, that somehow you're not going to have a problem. That somehow you're just going to go through life in ease. I want to tell you, according to that, the Apostle Paul must have been a terrible sinner. He was all the time in problems. Read about what it says. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was hungry. He was left for dead. He was, all kinds of troubles came into his life. What should we say to him? You weren't living the abundant life, Paul. No, no, he was living the abundant life. He'd been beaten, scourged, scourged terribly. And he's thrown in prison. And he's, he's locked up with his friend Barnabas. And he stands there at midnight singing praises. It wasn't that his circumstances were good. It was that inside he had fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and knew that all of these things came from a sovereign God. So how are you to be equipped? You're to be equipped by the word being taught. And, and, I, and I want to just say this. There is such a de-emphasis today on teaching the word. More and more, I, I will tell you, I don't know what's going to happen if I keep doing this by the time I'm 60 years old. I'm not sure what's going to happen because there is more and more of a group of people that are saying, oh, you're so emphatic. Oh, back off a little. Oh, don't be quite so bold. In fact, I get more and more asked to speak at other churches and other places. This afternoon I'm going. And you know what they say to me? They say things like this to me. We want you to come, and we appreciate you, but could you keep it light? That's what they say. And I'm not quite sure what they mean by that. What do you mean, keep it light? Do you like light beer so you don't gain any weight? Uh, what is it that you want? I'm not sure. I don't get exactly what people want, because we need to know the Word. And the Bible says, reprove and exhort and rebuke and to teach the Word without fear. And just in case you want to know... The, the, a big part of my week is to find out what does the text say? Not to find out what you want to hear, but to find out what you need to hear. What does the text say? And if I'm not honest with this text, that you see, the, listen friends, the whole church, the Bible says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and guardian of the truth. Now my friends, if the church is not teaching clearly the word of God, it is no longer a church regardless of the name that's on it. We need to know the Word of God and it needs to be taught extremely clearly. Now, God's... So let's get back to this point now. What's a pastor to do? What's to be happening in the church? Well, you should be preparing God's people and you're to be... The gifted men part is the Word and the prayer. And, uh, and by the way, there's nothing mentioned about programs. There's nothing mentioned about have all this. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. But the main thing is the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Now, look what happens. Why are, is the pastor supposed to prepare... Quit, what is it, excuse me, that pastors are supposed to equip God's people for? 
so that God people, God's people can do works of service. You know what this word is? It's actually a word ministry. Now, the King James, which I, I love and I quote often from the King James, but it really misses it badly on this point. Because the King James leaves the impression that the pastor-teacher is to also do the work of the ministry. But it is extremely abundant in the text when you study it carefully that the pastor-teacher is to equip God's people so that God's people, the lay people, are to do the works of the ministry. That is extremely important that you understand that point. In fact, I'll tell you, who is really in the ministry? The lay people. People say to me, what do you do? And I hate to tell them because they treat me terrible after I tell them. They go, you're a pastor. Oh, pastor. Sorry if I said something. They say, you know. And and then they say, what kind of pastor? And if I say I'm a Baptist pastor, then I just, you know, I I know what it is to be prejudiced against, you see. And they, I I hate to say that. I sort of walk around thinking, doggone, you know, here's another friend I've lost. You know, I don't have a chance. But, but, But I want you to know something. The Bible is clear that the saints are doing the work of the ministry. The book of Acts is so powerful, the church is so powerful, because like, a, like an ant farm, where all the ants are working, and, and, and like a, um, a, a bee hive, where all the bees are doing their job, and everyone, every part, in fact, if you look at the last part of verse 16, it says, when every part does its work. And the point is, everybody's to be involved, not 10 to 20% that run the church, but everybody is to be involved using the gifts God's given them so that you do the work of the ministry. People often say to me, and I tell you, it's such a burden to me because I'm not very good at a lot of this stuff. And they say to me, well, we think this needs to be happening in the church. And I always say, then why don't you do it? You see, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to keep you in sound doctrine. I'm going to keep you according to what the word of God says. You're just supposed to be doing the work of the ministry. Now, look at John Stott, one of my favorite writers, says this. It does not mean that there is no distinctive pastoral ministry left for clergy. Rather, it establishes its character. The New Testament concept of the pastor is not of a person who jealously guards all ministry in his own hands and successfully squashes all lay initiatives, but of one who helps and encourages all God's people to discover, develop, and exercise their gifts. His teaching and training are directed to this end to enable the people of God to be a servant people, ministering actively but humbly according to their gifts in a world of alienation and pain. Thus, instead of monopolizing all ministry himself, he actually multiplies ministries. A powerful church is not when you've got a dynamic staff. A powerful church is when there is a staff leading the people so that the saints are teaching the people and training the people so that they are doing the works of the ministry. And so that's when the church is most powerful. And we've got this idea someday, I need to evangelize my neighbor. Pastor, could you come over? I'd like you to witness to my neighbor. Where do we get that idea? Why don't you witness to your neighbor? You see, that is so important. A lot of people think this. Here's the picture of the church. Here's a big school bus, and I'm the driver, and you're all in it. And I get in there and say, hey, fellas, you ready to go today? Where are we going, Pastor? Well, you just follow me. Be quiet. No talking, please. Back there. You decide to. And we're driving down the road. What are we going to do now, Pastor? We're going to turn here. And a lot of people think that's the idea. That isn't the idea of the church. It isn't at all. Now, there is a tension, I want to say. Last week, we saw verses about the authority of the pastor, that you're to be submissive, that there is to be clear leadership, that is to be obeyed when you are persuaded according to the word of God. But on the other side of the coin, I want you to see also that there's a tremendous emphasis that the real people that are in the ministry, the real people, it's not somebody that's, the, the person set aside fully and taken captive that we studied last week are those to train saints so that they can do the work of the ministry. Now, I hope that you got that, because look what happens. When that happens, and you can follow right along in your text, look what it says. Resulting in the body of Christ being built up. 
What happens when the pastors train the people so that the people are doing the work of the ministry? The body of Christ, everyone who is in Christ Jesus, is built up. That's the word edified. It means to build a house. Listen, my friend Spurgeon said this. I want every member of this church to be a worker. We do not want any drones. If there are any of you who want to eat and drink and do nothing, there are plenty of places elsewhere where you can do it. There are empty pews about in abundance. Go and fill them, for we do not want you. You see, there's something wrong if somehow you think that your view of church is like this. And by the way, this was my view of church. Until I came to love Jesus Christ, until I came to trust Jesus Christ, I hated church. I tried everything I possibly could. I often had those Sunday morning illnesses. You know what they are? You get sick on Sunday morning, you miss, and then you come in, and then you feel better all Sunday afternoon, and then just about 6 o'clock Sunday night, you get it again. You ever notice that one? Some of you notice it, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Well, I will tell you that my attitude of church was get it out of the way. I had enough of a conscience that I couldn't enjoy my day off if I didn't go to church. But at the same time, I hated it. I just wanted to get it out of the way. And there is an attitude today by people that says this, what can I get out of church? And there is an attitude today, what will the church do for me? And, and I just heard of a true story. A man said there was a group of men playing tennis. Everybody knew one of the men was a pastor. One of the men was a pastor, and they play every single week, and they all sort of knew each other. And the one man who went to a, a different church than where this guy pastored said, we have just got this new deal, and it's absolutely the greatest in the world. They go, what? you wouldn't believe the new deal we got. We got a Saturday night service now. And all you have to do, you're guaranteed from the time you drop, walk in the parking lot that you're out of there in one hour. I mean, you're back in your car in one hour. That thing is over. And it, it's, you're covered for the whole week. And you're back in there and you're out of there. And man, it is the greatest thing. I have all day Sunday to go fishing now. It's fantastic. You see, you see, that's the attitude. You go to church to get your conscience clear, to get it out of the way. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. The reason for a pastor teacher in your life is to equip you. It's to cause you to be able to understand truth, grow up in the Lord, so that you can do an effective ministry everywhere you are. Think of how much more powerful the church is where all of the people, think how many people I'll meet this week. Compared to think how many people all of you in first service was bigger than this one. How many people in first service, all the people you guys will meet those combined. Think of the difference. And the church is powerful when everyone is doing the works of the ministry. Now let me get this one more time and make sure you get it. Look. What's to be happening? The pastor teacher is to be equipping the word of the people by the word of God and prayer so that God's people do works of service resulting in the body of Christ being built up. Now, look at this because it gets pretty great. It gets pretty exciting here. And that is this. Look at the goal. The goal is this. And you can follow along in your Bible or you can read up here because it's the same thing. Look what it says. The goal is until we all reach unity in the faith. Now get this. And the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Now there's the goal. The pastor-teacher trains the people so that they're in the work of the ministry, the body of Christ is built up, and then until, and by the way, until we all reach, that word reach is found nine times in the book of Acts. Every time it's talking about people going on a trip and reaching their destination. And the point here is this. Until we reach this destination, what is it? Unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and becoming mature. Now this unity of the faith is important. It's unanimity, it's agreement, it's increasing dependence on understanding the verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. Go back to verses 4 through 6 and look what it says. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, that's it. That's the faith we're talking about. In fact, I've used this in the past 
but this is such a, a good one to fit this. I, I want to make sure you get it. Here's a good illustration for you. And some of you that have seen it, don't just turn your heads and turn me off here a second. Look, I want you to think of, of an inverted pyramid. Take a pyramid and put it upside down. And here's the foundation of that pyramid. The foundation of the pyramid is this. There is a God that created us. If, if, there, if we don't have this, if, if God didn't create us, then there's no, we're not even here. I mean, there's no sense in us. This Jesus Christ stuff is a bunch of baloney. Okay? Second thing is this. We have fallen. We are desperately depraved, rotten sinners outside of Jesus Christ, and we are in trouble with this God who made us. Now, that's, you can't change that. If, if we're good people, then Jesus Christ, we make a monkey out of him. And look at this. How can fallen man get right with this creator God? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The center stone of the pyramid is redemption. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The person who he is, God and man, not 50-50, 100%, and the work, what he did. He finished it. It is finished. And no longer do you need to do anything to gain forgiveness. You just need to trust him. Now, look. He began all things in creation. We look to our origins as why we exist because of creation. He's coming again one day. He is going to culminate history. And we know that he's going to conclude all things. And look at this. Why we live the authority of the word of God. We, that's why we study it carefully like we're doing it this morning. And the love is the mortar that holds all of this together. Now look. Please get this, because when the Bible says unity in the faith, it doesn't mean that you have to be with a group of people that hold all these different rules of do's and don'ts that you have. It doesn't mean that you have to have certain views on music. It doesn't mean that you have to have future, a certain view on church government or different on spiritual gifts. My heart is grieved, and there are people in our church, week after week, who've got this attitude, and I, my goal as your pastor is to get that out of your heart, and that is this, unless you're just like me, you're a da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. And there's a whole bunch of theological terms put in there. And unless you're just like me, I can't learn from you. You're no good. You're really not as spiritual as me because you don't understand some deep truth that I know. My friends, if you've got that attitude, you need to repent. Because I'll tell you, we can learn from everybody in the body of Christ. Are you trying to say that there's part of the body of Christ you don't need? Now, you may not agree with everyone in the body of Christ, but you need everyone in the body of Christ. And the fact is this. Friends, that you may differ with even somebody here, eternal security, election, and free will. And I have pretty strong opinions about all that. But you know what? People that I disagree with are going to be in heaven, and I'm going to get along with them then. So I better as well learn to get along with them now. And what about this? Different views on sanctification. There are certain teachings that I hear about sanctification. I'll tell you, I have to turn off the TV to sort of tell you where I'm getting them. Because it, it, hurt, it, it hurts me to see people teach the Word of God that inaccurately. And, and there's going to be all these differences and here I want you to see this, this, this teaching is this is unity. We're, we're unified here. We may disagree there, but this, the, the person of Christ is so important. We are so committed to the, the cause of Christ. Now, I will say this. If, if someone is off on the person of Christ, it's my job to rebuke them. And if someone is off on how to be redeemed, my job is to rebuke them. If someone's saying man is good, then it's my job to rebuke them. And, and it, there's some terrible heresy here that we've got to fight. And I'm not just saying we're milk toast and we fall over. And we just say, oh, it's okay, you're sincere. No, we, we, we stand for the truth, but we allow room for differences. And I'll tell you, friends, we need it. We need that unity. In fact, listen to this. I, I, I love this. Ian Murray said this about the importance of unity in the church. Listen, hang on. I'm wearing my voice out. He said this. <clears throat> in our day, piety is too often thought of as a purely personal, get this, Piety is often thought of in a purely personal way 
and the church is spiritualized into some vague concept of communion of all believers, each of whom is individually related to Christ. The Christian's duty towards the church is something which comes well down the scale of priorities and is separable in the common way of thinking from loyalty to Christ. In other words, listen, you can be committed to Jesus Christ without being committed to his church. Oh, individual relationship with Christ, got to have it. Being committed and under the authority of a pastor teacher in a local church, no, no, I can do it by myself. Now listen to what he says. The whole orientation of Puritan spiritual character was different at this point. The church and her visible biblical structure, seen in her ordinances, her unity, her preaching, and her discipline, was in the forefront of their thinking. Her strength and purity must take precedence over all considerations because she is the church of Christ. Her welfare is bound up with the honor of her head, in whose name and according to whose will all her work is performed. Now, the glory of God is in the church. That's what the Bible says right here in Ephesians 3. The, the work of God is through the church. And it's important that we understand the fact that, that there's this unity among everybody who's in Christ Jesus. And you know, listen now, this just, it, it, it just drives me to, to batty, I guess. I don't know what else to say, but it drives me batty to think of Christians up here who are going, Oh, you don't believe this? Oh, well, you hold that? And there's some Christians that can, they can tell you the exact amount of beat that's allowed in every musical song you should ever listen to. But you know what? You can ask them. You can, you, you can look at them and see if they love people and they don't love people. You can look at them and you can say, are, are you a humble person? Is there, is there the humility of Christ in your life? And they aren't. You can ask them, are they a grateful person singing back the praises of God? But no, no, but the, that doesn't matter. You know, humility, love, gratefulness, let's don't get robbed. But I've got this right here. Helen, you better listen to me. What a bunch of baloney. How sad that it is. And my friends, it's, it's that balance that I want you to get to see. And, and, and hang in there, because I, I thought we were going to get through verse 16. We're only going to get through verse 13, but just hang in there, because I want you to see two more things. Look at this. Here's the goal. The pastor teacher teaches the saints. They do the work of the ministry. The body of Christ is built up. And what happens? We're unified in the faith. And secondly, look at this. The knowledge of the Son of God. A rare term for the Apostle Paul to use. He doesn't call, talk about the Son of God a lot. And not only this, the word knowledge there is not the, the word that just to know intellectually. It's the word knowledge, and that is this, to know intimately. It's more than just a collection of dogmas. It's not just knowing, do you have a, some kind of constitution you all agree to, and let's all, yeah, we believe in this, and we believe in that, and affirming all these things. That's fine, but now listen, it's more than that. It's also, it's also knowing God. It's also knowing the Son of God. I, I, I may have worn you out with some of these quotes, but listen to me carefully, because I love them. David Brainerd, and I've said this so many times that a lady in the church fixed this up for me on one of those cross stitches, and it's up in our bathroom, and I see it every single morning, and I love it. It's one of my all-time favorite quotes outside of biblical revelation, and it says this, I rose early this morning to seek the one in whom my soul loves. Oh, who would not rise to meet such company? Now that's quite a difference than grabbing your daily bread, reading through it, and checking off that you had your devotions. You didn't just have devotions, you met the one you love. You met Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and the goal here is that you, the, the word knowledge, now please get this, it's intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. That you would really know him. I got, you know I quote Spurgeon all the time, but hang in there with me. Here's another one. I've, I've used this one, but listen to me. He says, if you wear the livery of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. 
If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, tender, yea, lavish and superabundant, you always find it in him. I was, I must admit to you, I was turned off with going to church. I was turned off with Christianity. The whole thing was boring. I, I wanted to get out of church as fast as I possibly could. I wanted nothing to do with it. But I'm going to tell you somehow, if I, God in his grace helped me to see Jesus. I don't mean see him physically. I mean see him with the eye of faith as the scriptures described him. And there is no one as lovely as he. There is no one who has been so consistent to me as Jesus Christ. No one is faithful as Jesus Christ. It is the knowledge, and it is not just knowledge, yeah, I, I can tell you about him, I can tell See, a lot, of people, a lot of you sitting right here today can tell me all kinds of things about Jesus Christ, but you don't know him very well. The reason you know it is your life doesn't show it. He doesn't control you. And what I want you to know, friends, is this. The knowledge of the Son of God is an intimate acquaintance with him. Again, Spurgeon said, the knowledge of God is the great hope of sinners. Oh, if you knew him better, you would fly to him. If you understood how gracious he is, you would seek him. If you had any idea of his holiness, you would loathe your self-righteousness. If you knew anything of his power, you would not venture to contend with him. If you knew anything of his grace, you would not hesitate to yield yourself to him. Another writer says, Voss says this, All the demands of the people are summed up in this one thing, that there should be knowledge of God among them. And he goes on to say this, listen, there is, no fundam- there, is so, there is so fundamental a law that holds true even in idolatry. And you know what it is? It is this. As your God, so will your character be. Did you hear me? As your God, so will your character be. One of the reasons that the goal of the church is for, is for Christ, uh, for the, Christ who gave these pastor teachers to the church so that they could equip the saints so they could do the work of the ministry. One of the goals of all that is that the church would know intimately Jesus Christ. They would know how wonderful he is. Have you personally trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you come to him and know without a shadow of a doubt that he is not some far-off God, far away looking at us from a distance, but he's a God that knows you and loves you? Do you know that about that? Do you know about him? Because I'll tell you something, friends, the reason the knowledge, the, the intimate knowledge of the Son of God is so important is because you're going to become like the God you say you believe in. And the reason why Christianity, by the way, is such a turnoff in so many ways to me, and I'm sure to you, is because the knowledge of God is something other than it is pictured in the New Testament. We've got to know Him. We can't emphasize enough how important it is that we adorn the knowledge of God and, 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 and love and worship Jesus Christ. And oh, if I could be a pastor that could paint Jesus Christ out before you so that you just loved Him more week after week, what a, what a wonderful thing that would be. Now... Look at this last point here. That is this. You become mature. Look Now get this. The pastor teacher equips the saints so they do the work of the ministry so the body of Christ is built up so that the goal being unity in the faith, knowledge in the Son of God, and maturity. And how is that maturity described? Like this. Described, look at the verse, as attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Maturity. Growth. You've heard me say Christianity is 3,000 miles wide and one half inch deep in America. And the reason it is, is because we aren't mature. We don't know God. We're fighting and bickering over things that aren't important to the heart of God. And so I took a little, I did a little study on this word mature. And I studied it out. It's it's an interesting word. In fact, before I even tell you about that study, let me show you a couple other things quickly. It's this. You know this famous verse? Everybody loves it. And we know that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You know that verse? Everybody loves to quote that verse, right? 
Do you know what the good is? Do you know what the good is in verse 28? Look at verse 28. We know that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You know, I always used to think that meant that if you got a flat tire, the guy that stopped to help you, you'd end up witnessing to him and he'd get saved. Or if you got a flat tire that you'd look over and there would be a wallet and you'd check it out and there was millions of dollars in it and the guy had died and left it to whoever found the wallet. You know, those kind of things, right? Hey, first service laughed at both of those. You guys are dead. Wake up a little bit, all right? Those are funny jokes, all right? Now, real quickly, I want you to see what the good is. All things work together for good to those that love God. Look at the good. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. The good of verse 28 is conformity to Jesus Christ in verse 29. All things work together for good so that you can become more like Christ. That's the good, you see. I found this verse this week. My heart is, all week long, I've rejoiced on this one verse. I'm putting together like a, a, a beam of Bible, and that is every verse about the judgment seat of Christ just listed straight out for you. And look at this one. Here is one that you can know whether or not you're going to have confidence at the Bema. Do you know what? You can know now how you're going to do on the test. You ever take a test and you're wondering the day before, I wonder how I'm going to do on it? You can know now how you're going to do. Look what it says. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. You are in this world, you are like him. So what does that mean? You can have confidence on the day of judgment because you are like Christ in this world. That's powerful to think about, friends. That's powerful. Now, I did this little study quickly, and I'm going to run through it very fast. We may start on it again next week, but you've got to go at least this far with me because we made it that far in first service. What does the scripture say concerning the description of the mature? You study this word out, and it means a full-grown adult, not a little baby. How do you know if you're mature? Let me run through this quickly, and if you don't get it, because I'm going to go fast, we'll start on there maybe next week. The mature is this. You understand that the message of the cross is wisdom. The mature understand that. That's what the Bible says. You study this word out. You think biblically through issues you think carefully through issues right in the middle of this very difficult passage about spiritual gifts it says be be infants in regards to evil but be men full grown in regards to your thinking so you know how to think through issues biblically listen the reason why christianity is so void in many of your lives i want to challenge you with this the reason why christianity you never have quite clicked in maybe you know one of the reasons because you let your emotions lead you and your brain is like a little peanut in regards to thinking through truth. And we need to think through truth so that we understand it. Look at this. You have a passion to know Christ, and the goal of your life is to win the prize at the judgment seat. Philippians 3.15 says, all that are mature will have this view. And what is that view? That, that you would, you, your goal of your life, well, your passion would be to know Christ. And look at this. You are fully assured in the will of God. Paul says, Epaphras prays that you would be mature and fully assured in the will of God. So you, you come to... To, to, to be assured that what the will of God is for your life. You're not just tossed back and forth, as the scriptures say. Look at these three from Hebrews 5. You have the understanding to teach others. And please get this. Can you teach anyone else? How long have you been a Christian? You can handle solid food compared to milk in that passage. And milk is, by the way, the shallow little truths of just introductory things to Christianity. And you can distinguish good from evil because you've constantly used the scriptures. Look at this. You know how to persevere in trials. I'll tell you, a characteristic of a man who is mature or a woman who is mature in the Lord is when trials come into their life, they don't give up. They don't just quit. They don't say, oh, well, it's me. Look at what's happening. I thought, where's God? I thought I was supposed to, if you served, it was supposed to be wonderful. You see, perseverance in the most difficult trials makes you mature, the Bible says. 
And how about this? You're, you can control your tongue. Those of you that are having a terrible problem with lust, with a temper, with some kind of problem, I want to give you a little insight here. The Bible says that if you can control your tongue, you can control your whole body. So instead of focusing on trying to stop something that you're doing that you know is wrong, how about focusing on controlling your tongue? Because if you can control your tongue, which gives in easiest to the passions, you can control your whole body. Now, something else I want you to see is this, and I would love to do a whole sermon on just these. You know, we could do that because there's so much good, juicy stuff in here. You're obedient to the Word of God. You love other believers. The Bible says you're mature if that happens. Now, I want you to get this because that's the, that's the thing here in verse 13. If you notice verse 14, it says you won't be like infants being back, passed back and forth, tossed by the waves and the, cunning, and the false teaching of men. Now, let me have this little girl. I got a little illustration here. In first service, I got the little guy, and, and the little guy came on way too early, and I wore myself and him out. Now, this is Katie. Katie's 19 months old. Look, at, look in your Bibles at verse 13. You're to be mature. Now, look at verse 19. That you will no longer be infants. Mature is full-grown versus infants. Now, let me give you a couple of illustrations. I come down here. This, we'll just pretend, is cyanide. One, I don't know what cyanide is. This is that stuff that they have in the CIA. One little drop on your tongue and you're dead. It's got cross, crossbones and skulls on it. And I come up to this guy named Dave and I say, Dave, want a sip? Dave, you got to taste this stuff, man. It's awesome. Here. No thanks. Come on, Dave. Take a little bit. No thanks. See, Dave, why, why not? Why didn't Dave take it? He's a man. Not as compared to a woman, but he's a man in the sense that he's mature and he knows that it's wrong. Now, here's Katie. And I can say to Katie, oh, this is good, Katie. This is good. And remember, it's poison. She's going to die the second it touches her tongue. You want a sip? Well, she's pretty smart. <laughs> Colin went right for it. He was a good illustration. Come on, have a little sip of water. Look at No, oh, she's a smart kid. Okay. Now, you're all looking up here at me, and you're going, isn't a cute little kid and all that? But I want to tell you something about Katie. Katie will be 21 years old tomorrow. Suddenly, all of your looks of, turn into despair. Because if this little girl is 21 years old, there's something radically wrong with her. She hasn't matured. Now, let me tell you something. She can get tossed back and forth with the waves. You left me alone in this church all afternoon, I could get along. You leave Katie alone in this church all afternoon, she's going to be screaming, crying, distressed, discouraged, because she can't handle it. And one of the things that the Bible says the goal of the church is is that Christians would be mature. You would grow up. Why? So that you don't get tossed back and forth with every doctrine. I have people come say to me, well, this person was very sincere and they were a Jehovah Witness, but they were very sincere. Let me tell you. Oh, but, but you don't know, Kim, they're such good people. This group over here, they're such good people. You don't know. But they aren't teaching the gospel. Instead, they're teaching another gospel. And you know what people do? Because Little Katie, one more try with Katie. I know what I can do for Katie. Cyanide is no longer in there. It's in a tablet form. It's right here. A little lifesaver. Lifesaver. As soon as she touches it, she's dead. You want it? Oh, I got the wrong kid. <laughs> Everything this kid is, don't believe it, all right? But you see, friends, that's the goal. Maturity. Development. So that, she can, she, so, so that we get past this stage. And by the way, the word used in description of the scriptures of, of this size child is someone who is still on milk. Some, now, Katie's got some choppers in there probably. She probably can start to eat. But it's, it's someone that can't quite walk and is just starting 
to learn how to get off of milk. In other words, they're still on the milk. They can't eat real food. Okay, thanks, Hard. Thanks, Katie. Thank you, Katie. Good girl. And the point is, how about you? Are you mature? That is God's goal in your life for you to be mature. And the goal of this church is that you would reach unity in the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and you would become mature. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for not giving up on us. Thank you, Father, for putting up with our immaturity. Our Father, we pray to you in the name of Jesus Christ that you would work through those who come to this church, that they would be built up in the faith, that they would be mature, that they would learn how to be in the ministry and be effective where they are at work and every place they go, and that you would cause us, Father, not to be infants, but to take those that are newborn in Christ and have them grow up quickly in the faith. Thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for helping us and for not giving up and for being so patient to put up with so much of our childlike ways. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic recorded messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.